This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And I am keen to hear our panel's view of the Charter Challenge against Bill 7, launched by the Ontario Health Coalition. And that's the law that allows hospitals to send patients who no longer need to be in hospitals to nursing homes, not of their choosing, as you heard in Bob's News Apparently, 2,400 long-term hospital patients have been dispatched this way, and the long-term care minister says he is very pleased. Now, yesterday, our Zoomer squad opined that they don't think this challenge will go anywhere. Uh, so what do the recovering Pauls think? And what about the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act? The Prime Minister is set to testify on Friday. Meantime, the CSIS director told the commission that he told the PM the act was necessary. So does that get Trudeau off the hook if he was on the hook? And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. Now I'd like to welcome Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Lisa Raitt, the former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Gerard Kennedy, a former Ontario Liberal MPP and Cabinet Minister and also a former MP. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hello. Hey, uh, and Lisa, I would like to begin with you and your view of this charter challenge, because I know you have uh, thoughts on this and they're based on your actual life experience. Yes, it's true. And I'm, I'm actually going to be going to visit my husband this afternoon at, uh, at Baycrest. Uh, it's a very tough situation when people are not getting their first choice in terms of where they would like their loved one to be. There's no question about it. And I've actually received phone calls and notes from people who have been put in that situation, um, Libby, and they're not happy about it. And, and I and I understand it. So it makes sense to me that the Charter Challenge would be filed. And I think it's going to go through its due process as it should. And I can't prescribe what will end up happening, or I can't I, I can't, you know, I can't predict what will end up happening. The judge is going to make the decision. But I would say this is that at the very basis of the Constitution is that you do have your rights and you do have your freedoms, but there can be reasonable limits put on these rights and freedoms as long as they're justifiable in a free and de- democratic society. So what it comes down to is, is the government, if this is a right that people have to have their first choice in long-term care, is this a right that can be curtailed by the government as a result of trying to get a balance? And the balance that the government will say they're trying to seek is to free up beds for people who are waiting for them that are more appropriate for the people waiting than they are for the people who are in the beds as they await for long-term care. It'll be an interesting argument. It's going to keep the issue alive. It's a good public policy discussion to have. But it does point up to the big problem, which is, the system just simply doesn't have enough beds, and it's just going to get worse instead of better. Uh, you mentioned the first choice, but it's five choices. You know, when you sign up for long-term care, don't you put your first five choices? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. You don't have to put five choices down. Sometimes people only put one choice down because that's where they want their loved one to go. So uh, when that choice is exhausted and you can go off uh, on another one and uh, that that I guess is where you have a situation where the first the one choice isn't available, the hospital's not available, so the government will will um, provide to you the place where your loved one is going to go. Okay, um, we went over yesterday the arguments uh, for this, so I don't want to get into that again. But Gerard Kennedy, uh, one of the things people are saying about it is that it's really ageist and uh, this crisis uh, is trying to be solved on the backs of vulnerable older people. Well, I think there's some there's some basis for that concern. I think what you've got is 
uh, still a 1960s Medicare system that really was based on a time when people had a lot of younger members of the family. And you don't have, in Ontario at least, any more chronic care beds in the system. So you don't have anything in between that is still part of official Medicare. And so this is, you know, when once you're outside of that system, there's a vast drop-off in terms of the resources that could be available uh, to ameliorate situations. And our acute care hospitals are, are not set up to handle that transition. And so I think that's, that's what the court case would be interesting for ameliorating, is what really should be in Medicare for it to be a real, real working system, one that people can depend on in all kinds of situations. Howard Hampton, uh, you're one of our uh, lawyers. What do you think about this court challenge? Well, first of all, um, the facts that are brought before a court will be very important. So I, I think where you'll get into an interesting situation is in rural Ontario or northern Ontario, where this has factually happened. Someone living, for example, in a city like Kenora is told uh, that, oh, there's a long-term care bed available for you in Terrace Bay, seven hours away. And, and you know, you, you might say, well, that can't be true. No, this, in rural Ontario and northern Ontario, this kind of thing happens quite frequently. So if, if that's the factual basis that goes to a court, and the government tries to argue, oh, well, you know, this is... Uh, you know, this is reasonably, this is reasonable and it's reasonably necessary in a free and democratic society. I think on the factual basis, the government will be in all kinds of trouble. And I will just repeat, that is the situation in much of northern and rural and small town Ontario. That people are being told, you have to go, you have to take this facility, which, for which there may not be bus service, there may not be any transportation connection to for the person, uh, for loved ones. Uh, so, you know, that's just the, the legal side of this. I think um, what this will do, though, on the political side is create, uh, certainly the media will pay attention to these kinds of stories. And I think in the conservative base in rural and small town Ontario, this is really going to start to create a firestorm. Uh, because the media cannot ignore something like this when it uh, starts to, uh, you know, when you have perhaps five or six cases or where they're all joined together. So I I think, you know, down down the road, this is going to create uh, a real problem. And and frankly, uh... it's long overdue. It's, It's long overdue. You see, you go into these facilities, and I've gone into them, and you see... What's happening? Um, and you see people who are there, and they hardly ever see a loved one for weeks and weeks, sometimes months. And and you say to yourself, this is this this is going on, and is justified in a free and democratic society. Uh, you know, Howard, uh, that's interesting because one of the things that our squad said yesterday is they thought it would have been better to wait until there were cases where bad things happened as a result of this before launching some kind of legal challenge. Uh, what do you think of that argument, Lisa? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, obviously, you, you want to be in the business of preventing something bad from happening. Uh, and perhaps that's what this this charter challenge is, is meant to do, which is, get into a situation to make sure that there's there's not uh, that problem. I'd like to dispel two myths, though, um, if I could, about long-term care, that I don't know whether or not people understand it. And you may not like it, but these are the, the facts and the realities. Nobody in long-term care gets one-on-one care 24-7. The care that you provide at home or that you think you provide at home will always be far and away more comprehensive and more loving than the care that you're going to receive in a long-term care home. So to have, you know, an internal kind of analysis as to what kind of care you're expecting, when you put, when you put yourself in a situation where a loved one is going into long-term care, that's one of the things you have to come to grips with, that it's not one-on-one, 
And there are going to be times when the person is alone. And then the second piece that is hard to come to grips with is that you have to think about what's in the best interest of the individual and where their care is best. And in the cases of dementia, um, your presence is important. And I feel this myself personally, but having the best care that they possibly can have is, is far more important. Yeah. And, and the two may uh, not be the same. And, and the two and, may not be the same. And uh, uh, I think that you probably get the best care at Baycrest. Too bad not everyone can get that quality level of care. Um, I think every I think every home has it, but he doesn't get one-on-one care. Yeah. Like nobody does. And I think the care there is great. And I think the care is great in other places as well where, where my friends' spouses are too. Yeah, I've heard definitely heard of other places. And um, I have to say there's one thing that uh, came out of this that I actually thought was very positive because for a lot of people facing this decision, there's the whole issue of navigating the system. And according to this law, uh, and people are objecting that the hospital can share medical information without consent and all of that. But according to this law, a, a social worker or somebody at the hospital checks around to see what's available. And uh, I think that if that actually happens, that could be something that's actually really good because I think it's uh, probably uh, easier and more efficient for the social worker than for a family member, Gerard. Does that make any sense at all? Well, I just went through this with a neighbor of mine, 81 years old, and he was shoveling snow in February and they wanted to send him to long-term care. And it's a complicated situation. Uh, we were able to get him into um rehab and the choice is being made i mean they vary a lot it really depends on the on the organization the hospital organization how well put together they are something that people need to keep in mind is that not every long-term care uh, is equal i mean there used to be four or five levels now i think there's just three levels but there's a reason why there's some beds in some places and so you know they're not they're not all uh, suited and even in the city i think howard makes a very good point about the rural areas but even in the city, I mean, our neighbor doesn't have a driver's license. It was her husband that was moving uh, the family around. And so uh, the choices were very, very uh, slim. And doing it at home is great if there's hours. I mean, we're in there every week fighting for hours for uh, this individual who used to shovel all of our driveways and take all of our recycling and garbage out. We call him the sheriff of our block. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard you you work and what you do is that these things get boxed in. So uh, unless there's some enhancement of that social worker, unless there's some real plain talk for the families, and, you know, we've got lots of parts of this province where people don't have English as a first language. And, you know, uh, so you've got acute care staff who got, really got only one thing on their mind. They want to open up that bed. And so I think that in some ways this could set up a very oppositional thing that doesn't really fit well with the notion of care. And again, I think it goes back to, we need a healthcare system that is more than the hospital and the doctor's office. We made this decision already a number of months, or I guess almost a couple of years ago now, to empty beds for COVID. And I I don't know how that, you know, is something that reflects well on us. A lot of people died in long-term care that maybe could have done better if we weren't holding all these beds open for the anticipated problems. And and again, I don't want to make light of what must have been some very difficult decisions. But I think, again, the families really have to be alert. We need a lot more sort of educated and facilitators. We need more help. The Baycrest, the Sinai's, the people who work and are less ageist, that understand that people still have potential, that still have dignity, that they need to be treated that way. We need more of those people in the system. And so, you know, I mean, court cases and lawyers don't solve very many things with all respect to <laughs> to uh, the lawyers on the call, but I think that it is important that we get this somewhere we can look at it um, because each family having to litigate this within the system at a time. If there's an advocate, a patient advocate looking after them and saying no to certain places, that it won't work for that situation, that person won't get the care, they won't get the, the loving touch and the loving uh, you know companionship and so on because it's too far away, if those tools are there, but if we don't change something, uh, this could be a lot of sad stories. 
Okay, well, uh, and it's interesting, you know, you're talking about extra care for people. Uh, we have a regular caller named Pat. His family is obviously very well off, and they have a relative with dementia who I think is in long-term care, and they supplement that with one-on-one uh, care from a PSW. And uh, th- the figure he gave me is staggering. It's like $200,000 a year. Yeah, so I, I do that, Libby. I supplement. He, yes, of, and it takes the and it takes the burden off of the rest of the floor as well. So if my husband has, there's a number of patients on Bruce's floor that have supplementary one-on-one care, and and that frees up folks to work with other people. And it's very expensive. It is, but my husband had a long-term disability, and and he can pay for it. But it, others, they simply can't, and. The system isn't a real problem because we tell the sad stories at my end of the spectrum, at the other end of the spectrum of people trying to get into the hospital, are equally sad stories, too. Okay. Um, Turning, turning, we're turning uh, to a story uh, (laughs) that I don't want to let go of, and that is uh, Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health unmasked in close quarters at what looked like a really good party uh, just a couple of days after he told the rest of us to mask up indoors. And uh, we haven't even heard from him directly on this. Uh, Howard, what do you think of that? Well, I think it illustrates, uh, you know, in the absence of governments uh, setting down some rules, I think it uh, illustrates what happens uh, in terms of peer pressure. And this is, this is very similar to what happened to Dr. Fauci in the United States, who, as he uh, has said, you know, ordinarily wears his mask whenever he goes out into, uh, out into, you know, the larger world. But he attended a social gathering and he could tell that people who were there, uh, some of whom were close to him, were uncomfortable with the fact that he was wearing a mask. And so he, in, uh, in reference to their fact that they were uncomfortable, he took his mask off, uh, and five days later, uh, he's uh, diagnosed uh, with the virus. Well, but you think, just a minute, you think Kieran Moore uh, took his mask off because no, no, there was no. peer I, pressure? I'm, no, I, I'm saying this is the kind of thing that will happen in the absence of rules, that, that you know, COVID has not gone away. All you have to do is, <laughs> is talk. No, it's to, on the know, rise, actually. It uh, is. Uh, but I think what the governments have done is they simply said, "Well, we're you know we're going to absent ourselves from this." And I think what happened to Dr. Fauci is an example of of what can happen to many of us. And and to recommend that people wear masks, and then to uh, to do this, uh, I think. Uh, you know, really uh, tells us uh, how how absent in action our governments are, and uh, we really, increasingly, as we are individuals on our own, and I, I as Dr. Fauci admits, uh, it, it didn't uh, put him in a very good place. Okay, Gerard, uh, should there be consequences for Kieran Moore? I mean, like I said, there was a, a response from the Ministry of Health communications team, uh, but he he hasn't even, I mean, I would have thought that he would at least apologize or something. Well, I think, it, I think what happens is you've got a person now who has the moral suasion. For whatever reason, the political folks have stood aside and said, we're going to listen to the science, we're going to listen to the best advice. But if the best advice doesn't sort of maintain what they're recommending, I don't, then I think we're really bereft. And, and so I, I don't know Dr. Moore. I've heard very good things about him. Obviously, he's been in the, in the hot seat uh, since he came from Kingston. And uh, but, I, you know, I think you can't have half a public voice. Uh, you know, I'm a little sympathetic to the fact he isn't elected and therefore his accountability is limited. But I think, you know, we've learned that job has to be public, has to be somebody who can lead and has to be someone that can, you know, help set the tenor. I mean, we should all be. Those of us willing should be masking is, is what I think all the numbers are pointing to, that we're kind of sleepwalking our way back to a situation uh, that could be very difficult 
and could harm people. And, um, you know, I think we need to know that. I think that person, unfortunately, has that, you know, uh, that tough job. You, what you do is way more powerful than what you say in these situations. So should he be reprimanded? Well, I think he has to speak to it. I think that, you know, again, the moral suasion means uh, he's got this unique job. He's got the, the knowledge. He's got the he's got to tell us the straight goods of what's happening and where it could be going. And if that is the real job, of course, he has to have a voice and explain himself and and see where that takes it. I, you know, I don't I'm reluctant to say what should happen until we we hear from him. But uh, this person is supposed to be uh, someone that we can rely on to say what we need to do. There is a common good here. I think people are open to it. All that, you know, extremes of debates aside, I think people know that those are going to be personal choices in the end, whether you wear it on your nose or you put it somewhere, it's going to really help people. Happens when uh, we start to understand what's going on. He's the explainer, so he needs to explain himself. Lisa? Yeah, there's there's already a bit of a disbelief on whether or not masking is needed. And as a result, when you have somebody indicate that they strongly suggested who then doesn't take their own advice, it's problematic for for everybody out there. And it gets perceived as a do as I say, not as I do kind of a leadist approach. And that is unfortunate. But that being said, um, you know, we're all very, for, for those of us who deal in the world of public public policy, I think we all very much understand what the what the dangers are in, in some a situation like this. And he certainly is going to have to account for his lack of action on it. Well, he hasn't so far. And, uh, you know, yeah. uh, I, I don't know how much longer this will uh, have legs in the media cycle. Well, it, it, he's going to have to acknowledge it at some point in time because um, I, I don't believe it's ever going to go away. It may, it may not have a lot of legs, as you point out. I think that's exactly correct. But uh, knowing reporters as I do, if he's ever given the opportunity to be asked a question by a reporter, they're going to ask it. They're not going to forget. Uh, Yeah. Um, So far, uh, he has not been willing to come on and talk to me. No surprise there. Not surprised, Libby. Not surprised. Not (laughs) not surprised. But and, and, you know, the thing that also boggles the mind for me, he has been a public figure for a while. He's at this party. He can see people holding up their phones and filming. Like, (laughs) what was he thinking? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, that's uh, you know, I think all the, all the people on the call have been elected and know that you got to comport yourself in in certain ways. But this, I think, is a special role. We've elevated it in all the provinces, and you know, uh, I, I think he's got to step forward. I think his credibility is is draining, and and the fact is, if if twenty percent less people do what he tells them next time when it's more serious, because they don't they don't believe in in what he says, I think that's meaningful and. Uh, uh, that credibility has got to be restored. Well, it's meaningful, but not uh, measurable. And it's also interesting, you know, there was a picture of John Tory circulating. By the way, he was at that party because Toronto Life named him number 12 most influential Torontonian for, quote, keeping us safe, uh, which is a, a bit ironic. But, uh, you know, John Tory immediately released a statement because his, he, the, Kieran Moore was a video, but Tory, you know, had a picture against a backdrop and he said, Hey, I took my mask off for the picture. Uh, uh, and that was it. And, uh, you know, that that I accept. Anyway, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, let's turn to the uh, inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. And again, you know, my question is, after all this, uh, is this going to go anywhere or is it going to be a report that gathers dust on the shelf? Howard? I, I think uh, that, uh, you know, this, this will be a report that, that gathers dust um, as I listen to the events on an almost daily basis, uh, you have the police saying we didn't feel that we had uh, we didn't we didn't feel sometimes we didn't feel we had enough intelligence. Other cases, they're saying we, we thought we had the tools, but we weren't we couldn't get them to work or we couldn't get them coordinated. Uh, then you have uh, someone from CSIS saying, "Well, we think." Uh, you know, there were threats against the government or threats against cabinet ministers. I think the public, after a while, simply says, uh, I don't care. Um, I, and I think the public is probably getting there fairly quickly. 
because uh, when you have evidence that seems to contradict or evidence that doesn't, uh, uh, you know, what you, what you heard on Thursday doesn't jive with what you heard on Monday and certainly doesn't jive with what you heard last week, I think people just turn tune it out. They have far more important issues on their mind right now, like paying the rent, paying the mortgage, uh, you know, uh, paying the food bill and things like that. So I, I think uh, I think this will simply gather dust. Gerard, is this going to go anywhere? Well, I think it could be a big door stopper, like Howard says. But if, it, if the door that it stops is, is is using these kind of powers lightly, I think there's some some value to that. You know, I think the I think what's you know in the background, people are glad it's over. I think that uh, most people found it uh, very jarring that this went on for as long as it did, and I think there was a lot of confusion that maybe will get explicated here. Were, were the police and our other security powers doing, and what can they do, and and how did this obviously get away from people, uh, you know, but I don't know that that curiosity, as Howard has said, is, is really widespread. I think it was, it was an aggravating chapter in our time and where it ex- exacerbates some of the difference of the previous topic around, you know, or, well, at least implied around COVID and the choices that we get to make. And, uh, you know, I think we, we've got to be better at, at all of this. And, uh, you know, I, I think what is interesting, I think to, to some, but it's a very small group, I think, who are glued to the TV is that you get to hear and see how decisions get made and how they get put together. And the, the gaps, I think, are, again, concerning. But, uh, you know, I think we, we got to be careful about these kind of powers because there's a lot more power than actually got used. And it seems to come down to tow trucks and bad communication. Lisa, at the beginning, I remember you saying that you thought the inquiry was about whether the Emergencies Act can be used to cover for uh, police incompetence. Yeah, no, I'm still there. And I think the longer this goes on and the more testimony I hear, I'm concerned about two things. Um, I want to make sure that we are in a situation after this to make sure that we never have to use emergency powers again that they actually can manage what I view as a policing issue, not not a, a threat to national security better. And the second one is more problematic for me. Are we really ready in this country for a serious threat to national security? This was not a serious threat to national security. And they took down the, the biggest hammer the government has and went farther than they probably needed to do, including going through the financial sector. For me, uh, this is uh, a real moment for us to have a better understanding about whether or not we are utilizing laws in a way uh, that are just too big for for the problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting take, yeah. as as uh, is all of uh, your takes on this. I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Lisa Wright, Gerard Kennedy, and Howard Hampton. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, people, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, a tough topic, anti-Semitism and the latest expression and explosion of that by an NDP MPP. We'll talk about that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is the latest explosion of anti-Semitism on the left, and it is very close to home. At issue are comments by Ottawa NDP MPP Joel Harden. He has apologized after wide condemnation and after being ordered to do that by interim NDP leader Peter Tabins. Now, remember, two NDP candidates had to withdraw from the 2021 election at the very last minute after their anti-Semitic comments came to light. Remember, Annamie Paul has said that anti-Semitism was a significant factor in the way she was ousted from the leadership of the Green Party. And, you know, a lot of people say, uh, we're not anti-Semitic, we're just criticizing Israel. Uh, but in Joel Harden's case, anyway, there was more to it than that. So he was canvassing. He went door to door wearing a pro-Palestinian button, which is fine, wear whatever button you like, and, quote, asked many questions of Jewish neighbors here about how much longer we should put up with this, referring to Israel's policies. Really? Uh, you 
particularly try to provoke Canadian citizens who happen to be Jewish about Israel? And doesn't that perpetuate the stereotype of divided loyalties? Uh, he also said Israel is the major cause of violence in the Middle East, and that's just completely ignorant. Like, what about those tens of thousands of people killed by the brutal Syrian dictator uh, backed by Russia? What about Iran? Anybody been watching what's going on there? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to the president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, Michael Levitt. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon, Libby. Thank you for having me on today. You're very welcome. So, um, again, uh, what a lot of people say is, I'm just criticizing Israel or I'm just doing this. What is anti-Semitic about what Joel Harden said, did? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you you, you got it right off the top. And uh, that was certainly this uh, notion that he went and uh, kind of confronted Jewish neighbors um, with this uh, sort of uh, um, question about, you know, how much longer should we put up with this? And, uh, you know, I think what he said in the the piece was he asked many questions of Jewish neighbors here about how much longer we should put up with this. Um, According to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance IRA definition of anti-Semitism, um, the uh, holding Jews collectively responsible for the actions of Israel is a form of anti-Semitism. And, you know, can you imagine going out there and engaging in a way where you're sort of, you're bringing this up? And, and certainly in the way he explained it, he didn't suggest that people were asking or approaching him, hey, Joel, what's your opinion on this? He made very clear that he uh, has asked many questions of, of Jewish neighbors about this. And that is absolutely over the line. And let's be clear, it's not the first time. There's been longstanding tension between Ottawa's Jewish community and MPP Harden. Uh, so this is absolutely a pattern of behavior uh, that has really created much angst. And I have to tell you that um, I was speaking at, a, at an event in Hamilton on the weekend. This became sort of clear Saturday night. The amount of outreach that I got uh, from Jews in, 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 in Ottawa and across Canada, I know that the Jewish Federation uh, has been active and has put out a, a statement on this, as of other organizations, Sija B'nai B'rith, obviously Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. But there's real harm done here by MPP Harden's words. And, you know, he put out a, a, an apology. Um, but again, it's an apology coming after multiple uh, go-rounds of him having negative engagements with the Jewish community. Uh, I want to talk about the business of apology because the apology was also forced. He was ordered by uh, Peter Tabins to apologize. We've seen when we had those big stars, Kyle Irving and um, uh, Ye, uh, the former Kanye West, uh, when they made their anti-Semitic remarks, uh, they were also forced to apologize or uh, they wouldn't be able to go about their business. So what is the value of a forced apology? Well, you, you, you raise, you raise a very good, a very good point there. And, um, I, I have to say, I had the opportunity to speak to, um, interim NDP leader, uh, Peter Tabins yesterday, uh, yesterday morning. And, um, he absolutely acknowledged, um, and understood the harm that was caused to the Jewish community by, uh, by, uh, Joel Harden's words uh, and you know he he again um apologized um for the fact that this had taken place but you know the apology comes after additional um incidents that have taken place and and I think the part of the apology that that I'm most um ambivalent uh, about and I I use that word loosely uh, I regret my choice of words and sincerely apologize to the Jewish community. You have my commitment that it won't happen again. 
You have my commitment that it won't happen again. And yet in the case of Joe Harden, it is again. It, it is and again, again I, and again. I, I, I don't know that we need to get into what exactly he said before. And uh, I'm glad uh, Peter Tabbins talked to you about this because he didn't want to talk to me about it, though uh, we've talked to him on many occasions. Uh, so uh, what is the remedy? I know that some Jewish groups are now saying that notwithstanding the apology, this guy should be gone from the NDP caucus. So I think there is um, a couple of ways of looking at this. I, I certainly think we have to give primacy to the voices of Jewish constituents of MPP Harden and the voices of, of the Jewish community in Ottawa. And Andrea Friedman, um, president and CEO of Ottawa Jewish Federation, uh, along with their chair, Ian Sherman, put out um, a very detailed letter that they had sent over to MPP Harden. Um, but the last line is the line that I would focus on. And they said, based on your track record, we no longer have confidence that your actions will improve. And that's from his constituents, his Jewish constituents in Ottawa, presumably some of the Jewish neighbors that he was having these conversations with. And I think it's important when we look at issues of harm, we have to look at those who have been directly harmed and, and listen to their voice. So they've made it very clear that they think it is uh, um, time for MPP Harden uh, to exit the political process and, and, and exit as their, uh, uh, as their MPP. And certainly, from their point of view, they feel that the NDP um, should, be, should be cutting him loose. Well, yeah, I mean, we just had an election. Uh, you know all about that. So uh, we just had an election and the Jewish community can't get rid of him uh, for quite a while, but the NDP can expel him from the caucus. So are you saying that is what should happen? I'm saying that is absolutely what his constituents um, have said. What do you uh, think? We have, we, we, have, we have said that he put out... Um, uh, part of his apology was that he wants to work with Jewish leaders who can help him understand anti-Semitism. Um, we are very dubious about the sincerity of that offer. But one of the things that I spoke at length to um, interim leader Peter Tavins about was the importance of um, having a discussion with the NDP. Uh, Libby, you mentioned off the top that there was other examples previously with candidates, um, uh, you know, uh, um, swerving into the anti-Semitism lane under the NDP banner. And we think it's really critical that there is a discussion with the NDP on the issue of anti-Semitism um, and um, an education that can take place. Um, we're not even talking about the Middle East here. We're talking about the impact and harm caused on the Jewish community in Canada. So that is something we definitely um, want to see move forward with the party. And again, where uh, Joel Harden is concerned, um, I think the jury is out on, again, any sincerity and willingness on his part to, um, to engage in meaningful understanding and learning. Because if he had been willing to do that, he would have done it before. Again, you know, th this is a, um, a situation where these things are happening again and again. So uh, I'm going to default back to the position of the, of the Jewish Federation, and they've made their position on this uh, very, very clear. Why, and again, why, Michael, been, yeah. why are you reluctant to uh, give us your own opinion on this? It's not a reluctance. It's a hope that we can be engaging um, the, uh, the NDP to better understand the impact of the wave of anti-Semitism we're seeing happening, uh, you know, across Canada right now. And from my point of view, um, Joel Harden does not deserve another chance. Um, I think he's, uh, he's had enough chances already. He's put out this, uh, this, uh, you know, w this statement that he's willing to learn. Let's see if he takes anybody up on that. But regardless, I think the NDP should be acting and acting swiftly um, to, uh, you know, to the to the request of the Ottawa Jewish community. Uh, I'm going to ask you um, a sure. question that's probably a little tough now. Uh, 
So what is it about the NDP, about other organizations on the left that uh, makes it, I would almost say, a breeding ground for uh, this type of anti-Semitism? What is it? I mean, and it always comes with a side of self-righteousness, which makes it particularly annoying. We've seen um, a growth of anti-Semitism on the left, uh, often called the new anti-Semitism, which uh, often comes under the thin veil of anti-Zionism. But we know what it is. And we know that, again, when Jewish um, uh, community members are being targeted and confronted on issues of, um, you know, Israel policy uh, or Israel government's actions, we know how toxic this can be for Jews in Canada. And we've seen an explosion of this on the left. I mean, Libby, we just had a situation in Vancouver um, a few days ago where Vancouver City Council adopted, at the request of the Jewish community there and across Canada, Vancouver City Council adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism something that Ontario has adopted, a number of other provinces has adopted, and of course Canada has nationally adopted the IRA definition as the national definition of anti-Semitism. In the aftermath of that um, vote going through, we saw you know, uh, groups on the left calling out with venom Vancouver City Council for taking this action. Um, and I have to tell you, we are. We were so pleased to see Vancouver standing up, acknowledging the fact that uh, you know that Jew hatred in their city and across Canada is something that is surging and taking action. But to see then these voices, including voices on the progressive, uh, progressive voices on the on the on the left that are Jewish, coming out and condemning the uh, action by Vancouver City Council, it just speaks to this toxic environment that Jews are experiencing right now in Canada. But you mentioned it at the beginning as well. We're seeing social media being a breeding ground for it. Um, and we don't have to look much further than the examples of, uh, you know, Kanye uh, West, uh, Kyrie Irving, and the explosion um, of um, Jew hatred that has come from uh, from their engagement on social media. So is is that uh, is there is there anything else? I mean social media there's a, there's a huge amount of anti-semitism from the right as well, but is right. is is there any factor of, you know, a progressive left ideology that is, you know, behind this? Well, I I think that raises um a, a lot of issues in terms of somehow Jews um, being classified as the oppressor uh, and uh, as, as power. And it harkens back, um, purveyors of power, it harkens back, of course, to tropes that we've seen throughout time of global Jewish conspiracies, whether it's the media or banking. And again, the notion uh, that somehow it's the Jew that is responsible for society's ills. And we know that anti-Semitism is the canary in the coal mine of hate. It's the canary in the coal mine. It's always one of the first hatreds to show up um, at a time of societal ills. And, uh, you know, it's hard to keep track of the incidents, whether we're talking about on university campuses, where, of course, um, Jewish students, Jewish academics um, are vilified and uh, made to feel at a minimum, uncomfortable for any sort of outward um, uh, identification with Israel as a Jewish state or Israel as an ancestral homeland. This is part of the identity of the majority of Jews in Canada. The majority of Jews in Canada identify as being Zionist. And yet we're seeing on the left the, this being used um, as a club to, you know, to beat you know, Jews um, for having this identity. And this is very, very problematic and something that we need to continue working with through education, 
education is a you know is a is the, certainly at Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. Getting back to your original question about why are we pushing education in the case of uh, this current um, situation within the NDP? Because we know that for some people it's malicious and for others it's ignorance. And whether it's in a school or whether it's at a university campus or whether it's in our political system, we very much believe that it is imperative um, to be reaching out, educating on what anti-Semitism is, especially the new anti-Semitism that is so pervasive on the left right now. Okay. Uh, interesting conversation. Michael Levitt, thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, Libby. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, a much lighter, funner topic when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As the song goes, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But unfortunately, Christmas is not immune to inflation, and the price of Christmas trees has gone up by around 10% compared to last year. And tree farmers are worried about a shortage of trees, and they are urging customers to buy their trees early this year. So uh, we're warning you right now. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 744 740. And now I am joined by Shirley Brennan, Executive Director of the Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, how much of this is uh, the inflation of everything, and how much of this uh, is a long standing problem? It, it, we certainly are feeling the inflation like everything. Um, we have seen our operation expenses and our farms go up. You know, fertilizer, for example, went up 25% in one year. The, the, the issue, part of the issue is it takes at least 10 years to grow a Christmas tree. So farmers feel the impact for 10 years. And then by the time it goes to market, um, we certainly are seeing um, prices rise with, with the inflation and like everything else that's going up. Um, that runs our farms. Well, you, 10% is is right on the inflation rate. And frankly, I would have thought if there is a, a, a shortage compounded by all of that, it, would, it might have been even more. Well, so when we talk about shortage, we have been seeing that there has been um, fewer trees available for certain species. So we've been dealing with that for about four years. So when we first started looking at it, our industry went in Canada from a $53 million industry in 2015 to a $100 million industry in 2020. We could not have predicted that rate of increase. We usually see about a 15% increase. So having that huge increase um, certainly did play a role in it. Part of that was the pandemic in 2020, People really wanted to get out and do things um, as a family. And uh, so they embraced coming out to farms and getting um, a real treat. The other thing that we're noticing, so we really started looking at this, is this just demand or what's going on? And Stats Can report from 2011 to, and then the one that came out in 2021 shows us that we lost 20,000 acres of potential Christmas tree farms. Um, over the last 10 years. So that's equivalent to 30 million trees. So that plays into it as well. Wow. Um, and again, you know, when you talk about that increase, it, it is huge. So would you have expected that uh, since the pandemic, it's not going to be the same uh, this holiday? I'm not going to say it's over because it's rising, would you <laughs> expect that the demand would go back down a little bit? Uh, you know what? Our, our um, farms and, and growers are expecting that we're going to see the same sort of crowds that we saw last year. Some 
performers that opened last, last weekend had great opening days. Uh, we also know that Mother Nature um, has affected us as well. So, you know, people came out in the beautiful weather. Um, some people will wait until the weather turns so that it looks more like Christmas, like it, it is now starting to. Um, and, and farms across Ontario and across Canada have delayed, some have delayed opening, some have opened earlier, so that we're trying to accommodate all consumers. Okay, I'm going to take a very quick call from Victor in Etobicoke. Hi, Victor. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Are you going to get a Christmas tree, a real one? No, no, no. I stopped getting them. Okay. No, because, uh, I don't know, I hear that the ones that are wrapped up, uh, there's a lot of bugs still living in them. Uh, I don't know about that. We get one of those every year, and uh, we haven't had a bug experience. Um, Surely, people are being encouraged to get the tree early. So if you get a tree early and you take care of it, water it every day, how long will it last? Will it still be in good shape at Christmas? For sure. So if you're getting a tree now, there's a couple of things you can do. And I'm not necessarily telling everyone to run out and get trees right away. Right. Because we do have over the last three years that we have been dealing with this so-called shortage. And I say that because there, it, my office has only received one or two phone calls saying that, hey, I didn't I wasn't able to find a tree or can you help me find a tree? So there are trees out there in different species. But what happens is if you're going to go and get it now, um, some people will will leave it in controlled temperatures, whether it's in an unheated garage, whether it's out beside the house, but it's sheltered before they bring it into the house. But if you're going to bring it into the house, you're going to make a fresh cut on it. You're going to put it in water and you're going to water it all the time. Water is the key to keeping your Christmas tree uh, fresh and, and healthy throughout the Christmas season, regardless of when you put it up. Uh, you keep mentioning certain species. So what is most re- readily available and what's in shortage? So Fraser fir, everybody wants a Fraser fir. Fraser fir is the top tree in, for the Christmas tree season. That is not necessarily available in all spots. So, And that's, that's for uh, several reasons. Some farms, the soil just is not conducive to growing it. And then other other places they grow them and they're they're the ones that are brought in for pre-cut because farms not necessarily can grow them having said that there is so many different types of fir trees out there so if you can't get a, a freezer fir ask the farmer or the grower what kind of fir trees they have it's the same with the spruce trees if you like a spruce tree which is fuller hardier branches a little bit more prickly then uh, there's there's not just the white spruce, right? So ask your farmer what species they grow, because surely I've, the, I've, yeah. I've got to wrap you. I'm sorry, we're totally out of time, uh, and okay. uh, I'm sure we'll talk again before the holiday. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.